The following CME activity features content presented by expert faculty. These excerpts are part of a certified educational activity titled A Multidisciplinary Approach to Improving the Identification and Management of Patients with Transthyretin Amyloidosis. To access the entire activity and complete the post-test, please go online to www.peercme.com forward slash NQJ. A printable transcript, slides and other features are also available. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Alnilam, Switzerland, GmbH. Hello, this is Isabel Conceição from University of Lisbon in Lisbon, Portugal. Welcome to this activity on transthyretin amyloidosis. Join us is Olusur from Umeå University, senior professor with significant gastroenterology experience with TTR amyloidosis, and Mariana Fontana from University College London in the United Kingdom. Professor Fontana is a cardiologist, also with vast experience on cardiac amyloidosis. Transthyretin amyloidosis is a rare disease with non-specific neuropathic or cardiomyopathic features. The diagnosis is a challenge and often delayed for years. The symptoms are confounded from a neurological point of view by some other neuropathies, such as a chronic neuropathies, inflammatory neuropathies, and even with some hereditary neuropathies, such as sarcomaritus disease. In addition, there are some neuropathies associated with metabolic diseases like diabetic neuropathy, so it's quite common to be confused. The phenotype, as you discussed, is extremely variable and can range from patients with a predominant cardiomyopathic phenotype to patients with a predominant neurological phenotype. Some of the patients will present a mixture between these two. Ole, from your perspective, why is so important to aware of transthyretin amyloidosis? Most patients with transthyretin amyloidosis will eventually develop severe gastrointestinal symptoms. It is important to recognize them, and it is also important to try to help the patients because these symptoms are severe complications and can be treatable like bacterial contamination, bile acid malabsorption, gastroparesis, etc. Hence, you will probably want to ask the gastroenterologist to be involved in patient management. Cardiac involvement is the main driver of prognosis, so assessing presence of cardiac involvement is vital. Confirming diagnosis has got implications also for family members when we are talking about familiar forms and also is important in terms of medical management. For ATTR amyloidosis, we have some symptoms clusters that we can consider to be a red flag. If we have a progressive symmetric sensory neuropathy, in addition to a family history or any other of the components that we have in the figure, such as autonomic dysfunction, sensory involvement, cardiac involvement, renal abnormalities, vitreous opacities, or bilateral carpal tunnel syndrome, we should suspect TTR amyloidosis. Mariana, from your point of view, what do you think are the red flags or the cardiac phenotype? Patients with ATTR amyloidosis with cardiac involvement will often present with heart failure symptoms, but with preset or multi-reduced ejection fraction. Characteristic is the increase in LP mass. The ECG presence of AV blocks is extremely common, especially first-degree AV block. But also the absence of significant hypertrophy on the ECG matched 
with increasing LV mass on the echocardiogram. But this is not the only electrocardiographic features. Pseudo-infarction is very common with QS on the precordial leads or poor airway progression. Atrial fibrillation is very frequent in this condition. Rarely, also ventricular arrhythmias can be seen. Thank you. Holly, what are the gastroenterology red flags? Well, I think very often the patient presents with symptoms that can mimic irritable bowel syndrome. But the prominent sign is weight loss. That is an important warning sign. In addition, there's also vomiting, nausea, early satiety. Those symptoms can be present for those patients. In addition to carpal tunnel syndrome, I think also that spinal stenosis is emerging as an important red flag. It's important that the neurologists and the cardiologists ask the patients about these symptoms because normally the patient won't complain about them when they meet a cardiologist or a neurologist. They don't think that it is important. We have some key clinical questions that we have our patients. For example, do they have a progressive sensory symptoms, loss of sensory, mostly temperature sensation? If there is any unexplained loss in the last month, if there is any gastrointestinal de novo symptoms or even any autonomic disturbances. For instance, in men, sexual dysfunction is very important to ask about. Mariana, what are your key clinical questions? The key clinical questions from a cardiac point of view are presence of shortness of breath. The shortness of breath is almost invariably present in all patients presented with cardiac amyloidosis and also peripheral edema. It's important to ask for presence of blackouts, dizzy spells or palpitations because we have to think about the possible rhythm disturbances that these patients may present. Also, it's quite important to ask for presence of bilateral carpal tunnel syndrome because that makes a quite specific finding in patients with ATTR amyloidosis. I also usually ask for presence of macroglossia or periorbital bruising just because these are specific symptoms of AL amyloidosis that is for us one of the main differentials. Thank you. From the gastroenterologist's point of view, Holly, what are your key clinical questions? Well, you summarized it up very well. I'm asking about early satiety. This is something the patients may not think about because often they say they're eating normally, but when they're eating, they just suddenly are full and they can't finish the meal. Then also, of course, weight loss changes in bowel habits, etc. Also, there's fecal incontinence, which is not that uncommon in this population. And that is usually a devastating symptom for the patient. In addition, I think we should think about spinal stenosis, which is quite common symptom in patients with ATG amyloidosis. A large number of patients have had these symptoms at one point. Let's talk about the case study from my clinical practice. This is a 58-year-old female who started at the age of 46 with neuropathy symptoms and renal involvement as nephrotic syndrome. ATTR V30 amyloidosis was diagnosed at that time. No treatment was available as there is no indication for liver transplant. The only treatment available at that time and the disease progressive to a stage 2 and the polyneuropathy score 3B wherein the patients had several severe polyneuropathy and severe nephrotic syndrome. 
Two years later, upon disease progression, the renal involvement was seen, along with gastrointestinal involvement of diarrhea, alternate with constipation, nausea and vomiting. Three years later, worsening of neuropathy was seen and the renal involvement got worse, requiring hemodialysis. Nowadays, this patient is wheelchair bound with a severe cardiomyopathy. She is still on hemodialysis and with ocular involvement with vitreous amyloid deposition and glaucoma. Mariana, can we have a look at the patient history from your point of view with predominantly cardiomyopathy phenotype? Thank you very much, Isabel. So I will discuss the case of a 68-year-old lady, previously fit and well. So she presented rather worse in terms of breath, and she had for these several investigations, including ECG and echo, and they noticed a significant increase in LV mass with voltage criteria for LVH on the ECG. On the echocardiogram, aortic stenosis was noted, and so she underwent out-involved surgery. Based on the ECG echocardiogram and clinical presentation, diagnosis of atrophic cardiomyopathy was made as the current definition is that in an adult, hookum is defined by a wall thickness more than equal to 15 mm in one or more LV myocardial segments. The patient, after five years, underwent a CMR for research reasons and showed typical features of cardiac amyloidosis with extensive legal enhancement. We then perform a bone scintigraphy and this confirmed grade 2 cardiac uptake. And according to the current algorithm, with a grade 2 cardiac uptake in the absence of a plasma cell dyscrasia and in the patients we confirm absence of plasma cell dyscrasia, a diagnosis of cardiac amyloidosis can be made without a biopsy. We then confirm wild type genes. So in these patients with simple non-invasive tool, we were able to confirm a diagnosis of wild type ATTR amyloidosis but this was diagnosed five years after the clinical presentation. So, in summary, we can say that neurological phenotype of ATTR amyloidosis is a symmetric sensory motor neuropathy, mostly with small fiber involvement in early onset patients and with larger fiber involvement in late onset patients. This is symmetric neuropathy. Additionally, gastrointestinal complaints, autonomic complaints, and either renal and ocular involvement should be the key points for the diagnosis of ATTR amyloidosis. We cannot forget that we need to look for a family history in every patient we have with these complaints. Can I ask you, Mariana, from a cardiologist's point of view, what will be your key points about this disease? From a cardiological point of view, the importance of diagnosis of ATTR amyloidosis is that it's emerging as a relatively frequent cause of heart failure. And diagnosing cardiac amyloidosis is important because it's got implications for the patient management. As I said, it's not the standard heart failure management that is applied to other conditions. So making direct diagnosis has got implications for the patients, but also potentially for the family members, because in genetic forms, this diagnosis has actually got major implications for the family as well. I think the importance for me is to recognize gastrointestinal symptoms in the combination with weight loss, which differentiate ATTR amyloidosis for functional bowel disorder. That, I think, is an important point. In addition, when you make a sufficient evaluation for other gastrointestinal diseases like celiac disease or inflammatory bowel disease, and the evaluation turn out negative, and when the patient, for instance, also have 
cardiac symptom is deathly, is losing weight, then you should suspect GTR amyloidosis. Thank you. Hello, this is Isabel Conceição from University of Lisbon in Lisbon, Portugal. In this presentation, we will be talking about the treatment strategies for ATTR amyloidosis. The management of the disease is a challenge. Fortunately, new developments in this area are giving us in the ability to increase survival and improve quality of life for our patients. Treatment strategies for the symptomatic management of ATTR amyloidosis depends on the phenotype that the patients have. Regarding the sensory motor neuropathy, we have to deal with the neuropathic pain with antiepileptics or antidepressants or tramadol, opioids or topical anesthetics. The autonomic involvement is a big challenge for the treatment of these patients. Orthostatic hypotension with mydodrine 9-alpha fludrocortisone, even metoclopramide or elastic stokings are needed. Treating sexual dysfunction in the neurogenic bladder can also be a challenge. As the disease is progressive, those are the symptoms that are resistant to therapy, although we can use drugs for dealing with these sorts of symptoms. From the cardiac point of view, Mariana, what will be your symptomatic management of this disease? The main of treatment of patients with cardiac ATTR amyloidosis is symptomatic management with diuretics. So different combination of diuretics can control quite well the shunning suppress and the peripheral edema. And these are the most common presenting symptoms. We have a low pressure to consider anticoagulation in patients with fibrillation. For us concerned, the standard heart failure medications like beta blockers, ACE inhibitors, or angiotensin receptor blockers, these are usually very poorly tolerated in patients with cardiac ATTR amyloidosis, and no prognostic benefit has been proven for these medications. When patients present on these medications, we have a very low threshold to start this medication if patients are symptomatic at all, for example, hypertension. It's also important to have a low threshold for pacemaker implantations because there is a progression from first degree of AV block to more advanced degree of AV block. So again, this is something that we need to bear in mind and have a low threshold for pacemaker implantation. Thank you. One of the most frequent symptoms of these patients is gastrointestinal disturbance. How about the symptomatic management, Holly, for your point of view? Well, with gastroparesis, we normally try to use erythromycin in small doses, and that can actually be effective against this symptom and help the patient. When it comes to constipation, then you can use fibers, etc. But normally, the big problem is when the patients develop constipation alternating with diarrhea, and that is very often caused by bacterial contamination, and it can help them with antibiotics. Whereas when the patients develop continuous diarrhea, it is often caused by fat and bile acid malabsorption. And you may help the patient with bile acid sequestrant and fat-reduced diet. But often when the patient has continuous diarrhea, treatment is difficult. What are the current available treatment strategies for ATTR amyloidosis? And what does the clinical evidence suggest about the optimal use of these treatments? Given that tafamidus has good long-term results in early onset reversimate patients, few patients will be eligible for liver transplantation nowadays. 
Tafamides is a small molecule that is delivered all the way through and is a stabilizer for the transthyretin. It was approved for use in ATTR amyloidosis in stage 1 patients, which means patients without help to walk. And there is a class 2 evidence that shows us that tafamides at a dose of 20 mg a day decrease clinical progression to a moderate rate of deterioration in a large and small fiber nervous function associated with neuropathy progression. We now have the data that show that patients who are treated early at disease progression get better benefits and longer survival. Now, Holly, what do you think about emerging treatments? I was involved in the Patinfirvan study, which has a really encouraging result. The idea behind it is to deprive the patients of transthyretin, both mutant and wild type. In that way, you see the amyloid formation because amyloid formation is probably a concentration-dependent process. Thus, if you diminish the amount of transthyretin, then you also diminish the amyloid formation. I think the proof of concept was shown very convincingly in the Apollo study. As you can see, the depression of TCR formation was about 80% in the patients who received patisivar. That was a high suppression, and it also turned out to be associated with a clinical benefit. As you can see from the primary endpoints, the improvement in MEs plus 7 were really impressive in the participant group, when only 60% of the patients actually achieved an improvement. That is something that, to the best of my knowledge, has not been shown before with any kind of medical treatment or liver transplantation. There was also an improvement in the normal quality of life score. Interestingly, if you look at the secondary endpoints and expiratory endpoints, you also saw a quite clear benefit for patients on the PET-CC1 compared with placebo. I think the 10-meter walk test is an interesting item to look at because this measures both neurological impairment and also to some extent cardiac function. And it improved in the participant group. And also in the modified better NOS, NOS index, which is a measurement of nutritional stasis. So all in all, this study had very positive results. In addition, we had very few side effects in the study. In fact, the serious adverse events and all serious complications were more prominent in the placebo group. We clearly saw an increase of diarrhea in the participant group, but in my experience, it was not a big problem. It was normally some days after infusion. There was also peripheral edema, which was not a big problem. However, none of the patients actually were taken out of the study because of that. Mariana, can you please comment on the result concerning the cardiac stock group population? So, in terms of effectiveness of patisiron at the cardiac level, patisiron was associated with a decrease in LV wall thickness, global longitudinal strain, MT MP, and most importantly, adverse cardiac outcome compared with placebo were reduced suggesting that actually patisiran may hold or reverse the progression of the cardiac manifestation of HATTR amyloidosis. These are the results of the Apollo study recently published in circulation, and this is probably not enough to actually give a cardiac indication that the cardiac level in changing actually disease progression. But this is a very important study because focusing on patients with cardiac involvement aimed at proving that actually patisiran reverse disease progression also at this level. 
In conclusion, ATTR amyloidosis progression occurs rapidly, highlighting the need for effective treatment. Currently available therapies are designed to reduce or stabilize the pathogenic TTR protein. Liver transplantation is established for early disease stage, but this is limited by organ availability and toxicities. Tafamidis is a TTR stabilizer approved in selected countries for eligible patients. More recently, patisran, a knockdown drug, shows significant effects on the neuropathic progression, quality of life, and cardiac involvement for patients with ATTR amyloidosis. From a cardiac point of view, the main treatment still relies on symptomatic treatment. With the recent research published, there's hope that this will change in the future as Patisron has proven that there may be a suggestion that is able to halt or reverse disease progression. But as for now, Patisiran is not approved yet with a cardiac indication, but hopefully future study will give information on this very important point. Well, I think the important point from the Apollo study is that it included a very broad panel of mutations, and they all shown equally good results, and also early and late on to research in patients. Additionally, you can also treat patients in stage 2 disease, that is, patients who need help with ambulation. It is very common that when the patient comes to our office, sadly enough, they already have walked in impairment. Also, as Marianne pointed out, we can also treat patients with a mixed phenotype, that is, those patients who have both neuropathy and cardiomyopathy. Thank you for listening. Thank you for participating in this peer CME educational activity. To obtain your CME certificate, complete the required post-test and evaluation form.